Well, if you remember back to our last sermon in this series in Genesis, we got to know Abram. I titled the sermon uh, that week, Abram's Call. It, It recounted for us when God called Abram from Haran to go to Canaan. God doesn't tell him where he's going, just that he's supposed to go, and Abram obeys. Well, today you might notice that our title is very similar, but rather than Abram's call, our sermon today is titled Abram's Fall. While the first part of Genesis 12 is dedicated to Abram's obedience to the Lord, going where and when the Lord says to go, the second half of Genesis 12 tells us of Abram's subsequent mistrust of God, self-serving sin against both his God and his wife. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. This is God's word to us. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Loving God, your word is true, and it is good, and it is alive. These are not just historical stories that inform our minds, but they are living words that reveal our sin, that give life and salvation. So do that today. Show us our sin and show us your son, the answer for our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider this second half of Genesis chapter 12, I want to point out Three things that we see in our text. The first one is this. We see the the foreshadowing of the Egyptian captivity and exodus. Even with a a casual reading of this account, your mind is likely drawn to another account of God's people ending up in Egypt. Of course, I'm talking about the events that would lead Abram's future grandson and great-grandchildren to flee to Egypt. There's a long history of people taking the journey uh, to Egypt during times of drought and famine. Uh, Egypt uh, is home to the famed Nile River, 
the longest river in the world, which in Bible times provided predictable annual flooding that made it an agricultural powerhouse. These floods would bring nutrient-rich sediment from as far south as Tanzania, making the soil in the Nile River Valley incredibly fertile. And the Egyptians were smart and constructed a system of irrigation ditches and basins that would allow them to control the floodwaters, to leverage them to their advantage. To many, Egypt was known as the granary of the world. And many would travel there uh, over the centuries to escape famine. But when you look at the account of Abram and his clan uh, heading to Egypt, there are some interesting similarities with the later account of Joseph and his family. And I think this becomes uh, particularly clear when we get to verse 17 of our text, when God sends diseases, or that word could be translated plagues, upon Pharaoh and his household. We can't miss the parallel with the Exodus account. If I was to ask you which book of the Bible do we see God send plagues upon Pharaoh, almost all of us would respond Exodus. But we see it happen in our text today. There is a a foreshadowing of that future event in our text. And this is interesting, and I point this out because we see the consistency of the scriptures. The continuity of the story. God was using the events and the experiences of Abram to set the stage for what was to come later. Like Abram, his descendants would end up in Egypt because of famine. Like Abram, his descendants would see God rescue them from the grip of Pharaoh. And like Abram, his descendants would leave Egypt with countless blessings that were unearned. We'll discuss uh, this a little bit more in a minute, but I, but I wanted to point out this parallel of, God, of, of God's saving, delivering work, this foreshadowing of uh, what becomes one of the most pivotal events in the history of the Hebrew people. What else do we see in our passage for today? Second, we see the unbelieving and self-serving nature of humanity. There's, there's one type of unbelief in our text, one self-serving action that is pretty obvious, that sort of jumps off the page when we read it. We'll get there in a minute, but, but first I want to mention one that might not be so obvious. Think about where we left off in our text last time we, we talked about Abraham. He, he was building altars, he was worshiping the Lord in Canaan. Uh, God had promised in uh, Genesis 12:9. we read, uh, Genesis 12, early in Genesis 12, we read that God had promised this land, this blessing. And then in verse 9, we read that Abraham uh, set out and continued toward the Negev. Uh, the Negev is a region in the southern part of ancient Palestine or Canaan, uh, south of Jerusalem, west of the Dead Sea, if you're familiar at all with your Middle Eastern geography. It's an area that's dry, arid, we would call it desert. Uh, now, now you, might be, you might be wondering, and this would be a good question, why do we see Abram moving around so much? He was at Shechem, he built an altar there, and then pretty soon the next thing we see in our text, he's on the move again, he shows up at Bethel, and he builds an altar there to worship the Lord, and then he moves on from there. Why all of this moving? 
And we really can't, in our context, understand a nomadic way of life. Uh, probably the best example of a nomadic way of life that we have in our, our culture is uh, the brightest among us, those we call snowbirds, who uh, enjoy North Dakota summers and then uh, go somewhere tolerable during the winter months. Uh, you might pretend to be tough, but I know that all of you, a couple weeks ago, were looking at your thermometers, wondering how would it be possible to escape this winter experience in North Dakota. But in an arid climate, it, it was common for people not to settle in communities so much as to live in tents, in portable dwellings, and they would follow the food. Uh, this was very common in North Dakota, around us, before European colonization, where our indigenous predecessors would follow the bison. This is a way of life in much of the ancient world. And so Abram and all those in his clan uh, move south from Bethel toward the Negev. But when they get there, there's no food to be found. Our text says that there was famine in the land, and of course we know uh, that famine is almost always a result of drought. And so this is the point in the account at which many would argue that we see Abram's first act of unbelief. He heads to Egypt. Now that on the surface might not seem like unbelief. But let me read for you Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of chariots, in the strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Many believe that Isaiah has in the back of his mind, uh, as he writes these words, the actions of Abram in our text. In their immediate context, it's speaking of people running in fear to other foreign pagan nations looking for help. But many have argued that Isaiah had Abram's journey to Egypt in the back of his mind as he wrote these words. And in fact, twice in Genesis 12, earlier in the chapter, we have mention of God telling Abram to go and Abram going. But when it comes to verse 10, God doesn't tell Abram to go to Egypt. It just says that Abram went. God told him to go to Canaan, and Abram goes to Egypt. God promised this land to Abram. God promised to provide for him, to take care of him. And then the famine, the time of testing comes, and Abram runs off to Egypt for help. Now, Genesis 12 doesn't specifically say that Abram's decision to go to Egypt was an act of unbelief, doubting God's provision for him. But I think when we read it in light of Isaiah 31, and, and especially in connection with what Abram does when he gets to Egypt, I think it, it's fairly clear that the whole trip was a product of unbelief, of doubting God's provision. Things got difficult. Abram panicked and he took matters into his own hands. That's a theme that we'll see from Abram in the chapters to come. But even if you don't agree with, with my assessment that this uh, this is the first act of unbelief, that fleeing to Egypt was an act of unbelief. There's no way to avoid uh, what comes next when they arrive in Egypt. Abram again panics. Look at verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, 
I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So say that you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Abram doesn't trust the promises that God made to him. In this moment of testing and hardship, Abram doubts that God will actually make him into a great nation. That God will actually bless all people through him. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He's going to solve this situation himself. Now to be clear, Abram's concern was justified, right? This wouldn't have been the first time that in the ancient world that people killed a man in order to take his wife as their own. We see in verse 14 that Abram's assessment of how the Egyptians would respond was actually correct. The Egyptians did see Sarai, and they did notice that she was beautiful. And so they put their plan into motion. Sarai was taken into the king's palace. And what becomes of Abram? He's compensated well for offering Pharaoh his sister. Verse 16 says that Abram acquired sheep and cattle, donkeys, servants, and camels. Now let's just stop for a minute and and realize the gravity of what's taking place here. Women, just imagine that you're on vacation somewhere. One of the local officials takes a liking to you, and your husband says, hey, let's let's just tell him you're my sister, and go and do whatever he says. And then they compensate your husband. Sarai's brought into Pharaoh's harem of wives, and Abram gets rich out of the deal. This is insane, right? This is the man whose faith would later be, be heralded throughout the New Testament. This is the one who the Apostle Paul and the writer of the Hebrews holds up as a model of faith for us. I talked about one parallel in the story between this account of Abraham and the later account of the Hebrews going to Egypt. But there's another parallel that I want you to notice, and that's with two stories that we've already heard. The first of those two stories is the story of Adam. Think about Adam's creation. We're introduced to him, and what's the very next story that we hear? When Adam rebels against God, doesn't trust the Lord, takes matters into his own hands, is going to do his own thing. And then we have Noah. We're introduced to Noah. He's the hero. He's the only righteous person left. And then he gets off the ark, and he plants a vineyard, and he makes wine, and he gets drunk, and he passes out naked in his tent. And now we have Abram. We're introduced to him. He's obedient to the Lord's call. He goes where the Lord tells him to. God chose him. God made these incredible promises to him. And the very next story in Abraham's life is our text for today. This consistency reveals something important about our humanity and even more so about our God. We are prone to unbelief and self-serving action. This is just what we do. Abraham is us and we are Abraham. Now many of you may hopefully never do anything on the scale of what Abraham did. 
But you have your own seasons, your own moments of unbelief, your own doubts about the goodness, the promises of God. I love that the Bible doesn't whitewash or sanitize the history of God's people. The Bible doesn't pretend like there's this long line of faultless people. The ancestry of Jesus is littered with sinners and failures and bad guys. The story of Scripture is not a story of perfect people woven together, highlighting their perfect obedience to God. It's a story of God calling and saving sinners and then making them a part of his plan to redeem the world. And that brings us to the final thing that I want you to take note of today. And that's this, the the faithfulness of God in spite of our sin. Some have tried to downplay the sin of Abram. There are arguments made, and you can read these, uh, that perhaps Sarai was actually a close relative of Abram, maybe even his uh, half-sister, and that wouldn't be out of the question in the ancient world. Others have said that that Abram's actions were actually justified. But even, even the best of those arguments, even in the best possible light that we can shine on Abram in this situation, we're left with the impression that Abram is a deceiver and a terrible husband, at the very least, right? And, and he doesn't trust the Lord. But of course, we know that God had made a promise, that he was going to see that promise through to completion, regardless of Abram's doubt and deceit and poor choices. So God enters the picture in Egypt and he intervenes. Think about how God swoops in and and fixes the mess that Abram had created. Sarai is in the palace of Pharaoh. We don't know how long she was there. Long enough for Abram to get rich out of the deal. Uh, So it's not like God entered the picture on day one, likely. Abram accumulated livestock and riches and servants during their time in Egypt. We don't know if it was days or months But we do know that God sends disease upon Pharaoh's house. And the result is amazing. Pharaoh, the unbelieving pagan ruler, calls Abram out. Listen to verse 18. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and he says to him, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh says, why did you lie to me? This ruler who had a penchant for gathering every good-looking woman into his harem is the one whom God uses to confront, to rebuke, to call out Abram for his sin. God was faithful in spite of Abram's sin. Because if you remember a few weeks ago, the blessing that God promised wasn't about Abram. The focus wasn't on Abram. Abram was just the one through whom God promised that all people would be blessed. God remained faithful to Abram in spite of his sin because God was focused on redeeming all people from their sin. And one of the craziest parts of the story is that in eight chapters, if you've read ahead, you know, in eight chapters, we're going to see Abram do almost the same exact 
thing a second time. Abram wouldn't learn his lesson very quickly. He's like us. He sinned, and then he thought, hmm, I pretty much got away with that. Let's try it again. We are Abram. Abram is us. But God is faithful in spite of our sin. Any place you look in the scriptures, that's what you're going to see. The faithfulness of God in the midst and in spite of the sinfulness of his people. You cannot earn your way into God's favor. You cannot live a clean enough life to keep yourself in God's favor. Adam didn't do it. Noah didn't do it. Abram certainly didn't do it. You haven't and you won't. This is certainly an interesting and a strange account from Genesis. It shows us the cohesiveness, the consistency of Scripture. It reveals our tendency toward unbelief and our self-serving nature, and it makes clear the, the faithfulness of God in spite of our sin. But there's another thing that this passage does. You might say it whets our appetite for the gospel. It leaves us longing for a truly faithful, truly obedient, self-sacrificial Savior. You see, there would be a more faithful, a more obedient Abram who would come. And rather than sacrificing another for his own comfort and his own prosperity, he would offer up himself. He would commit himself into the hands of God. He would lay down his life in the place of another. While we doubt God and seek our own comfort and gain, Jesus took our sin upon himself in our place to ensure our forgiveness. If Abram's hope, if Abram's salvation was dependent upon his own righteousness, his own goodness, his own behavior, then he had no chance. He was a sinner through and through. He proved it, and he would prove it again. And the same is true for us. But as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 4, when he holds up Abram as an example, he tells us Abram's righteousness came not from within him, but from the outside. He, Paul says, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus was the true and better Abram. Rather than scheming and lying and maneuvering to save his life, Jesus could have just called down armies of angels. They would have rescued him. But instead, he willingly offered up his life. He did it for Abram and Sarai and for you, for me. And his perfect righteousness, this, this is what we learn from the life and the story of Abram, his perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us by faith, just as it was to Abram. Jesus went to the cross for us. And this morning, he offers us his forgiveness for our unbelief, for our self-serving. He offers forgiveness for all of our sin. And he invites us to receive those gifts today. 
at the Lord's table. Let's pray. God of Abram, you are the God who remains faithful despite and in the midst of our sinfulness, our rebellion, our unbelief. You have brought true blessing. You have brought salvation to all people through Abram. We are recipients of your faithfulness, your unwavering promise to Abraham and his descendants, even when they did nothing to deserve it. So we're so grateful this morning that you remain faithful. While we waver in unbelief, self-worship, self-preservation, you remain faithful. We recognize today that our only hope is in your promise to Abram and through Abram to us. Promises that we hear and that we receive today at your table. So prepare our hearts to receive from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.